Hello, Charlie Gladstone here, and welcome back, or welcome, to my Mavericks podcast. Thank you very much indeed for joining me. Today's podcast is the first of two that I recorded live at the Good Life Experience in September of this year. It's a conversation with Valentine Warner. Those of you with um, long memories might recall that Valentine and I chatted in one of the earliest editions of this podcast, and I think this is the first time that I've ever published the same person twice, but Valentine is not only an endlessly engaging, amusing, and very intelligent person, but also a complete polymath, and is about to launch a brand new book called The Constellation of Food. And he actually asked me if I would interview him at the Good Life Experience, which of course I was delighted to do. So we sat down in the drawing room, which is one of our speaker stages at this year's event, and we chatted in front of a group of, I should think, about 150 people. And at the end of that, Valentine read from his book. So without any further ado, here is me speaking with Valentine Warner at the Good Life Experience. Really, this is, this is a, a, an event to tr- start to try and um, get people to think about Valentine's new book, which is, from what I've seen of it, remarkable, and out in about three weeks' time, I think. Yeah, on October the 9th. Great. Um, what I thought we'd do is we, we'd split the conversation into three shortish chunks, and then Valentine will read to us for about sort of 12 minutes or so. And, and I, I, I'm sure that everyone here is, is aware of Val, but I thought it would be good to start off with, with just sort of praising his career up to the last year or so. Uh, we first met Valentine at our very first ever Good Life Experience, where Caroline was introduced to him. And um, he's been, and this, this is not sort of um, me being platitudinous, he's been the most supportive person of the festival. And although Caroline has been exceptional at putting together the campfire cooking, which is in many ways the heart of the festival, she genuinely couldn't have done it without Val. So we're, we're very lucky to, um, to be sort of starting on the same page here and I. I think we like the same things. But you, 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 you will get to learn in a moment, if you don't already know, that Val is something of a, a Renaissance man and a polymath. And um, I think it's, it's, um, it, it wasn't straight to cooking, as, as Mark Shaler implied there. What's, uh, where did your... Life start. I mean, talk to us about school. Just, just give us a minute. God, that's school. the one thing I really don't want to talk about. <laughs> one, 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 you know, one sentence. Good or bad? Um, miserable. Um, didn't fit in. Um, no school would have fitted me. And I think it was all about the minute I, I kind of left school that everything started to happen. Okay. So, yeah. so what was that? Well, I, I, um, I, I couldn't. Uh, I love drawing things. Um, I like making things um, from a very early age, and um, I was rubbish um, at academia. Um, and I spent my life in the in the art class. Um, so when I left, the logical place for me to go was art college. Um, didn't get into any of the ones I wanted. Had no A levels, um, except that I did write an essay on the Duchess of Malfi that went into the Oxford book of examples of how to write the perfect essay on the Duchess of Malfi. But I still got but I still got a D. Um, anyway, it didn't, it didn't pull me through. Um, so I went to art college, and, um, and that's where things started to kind of open up for me. Right, um, okay. And, and so, but it wasn't logically cooking or food? No, um, I, I, grew, I think actually Dorset's a very important part of my life. I grew up in 1972 in Dorset, which was um, very, very rural. 
Um, my father was a diplomat, but I grew up on a dairy farm. And he would, I owe a lot to my dad, actually. He, was, uh, he, was, um, this, he would be 104 now, my father, so I had a very old, you know, he, I was born when he was 52. Um, and he had been ambassador all over the world, but loved Dorset and loved his farm. And that's where I grew up. And he was a man who would always kind of come through the door with pockets full of mushrooms and be picking rose hips and making cough syrup. And he animated all the animals. If you went into the woods, they were full of hedgerow spirits. And there was chattering voices coming out of the hedges. So everything was this kind of wild, magical. Um, and he loved food. Um, so very, when you kind of, I used to go and collect the milk every night. There was a, a kitchen garden where the vegetables came from. And then I had a father who was mad about wildlife. And so, and we're a very greedy family. In fact, somebody described the Warners as, um, as looking like a bunch of hyenas tearing apart the flimsy carcass of a baby zebra. So <laughs> we, we were very, very concentrated on food. So the concentration on food, the rural setting we were in, and just the way I was, I think I've always been undiagnosed with something, um, but um, was that the world was either edible or inedible. And so that was very important for me. I kind of went outside and it was what can you eat and what can't. I understood the world through biting people, um, eating oil paints, um, uh, kitchen table legs, um, anything that's in front of me. I was constantly wow. going off to hospital to have something taken out of me because that's how I understood the world, by biting it. Um, so. how, how, that is really, actually, I mean, it sounds amusing, but it's fascinating. It's really interesting, actually. But I don't want to get, I don't want to get too sort of hung up. I mean, we could do a whole podcast about things, oddest things you've eaten. Well, I'm going to read you about that later, actually. Um, okay. But, but I mean, I, so, so, okay, so creative soul in the countryside. And drawing. Um, drawing a lot. Went to art school. Quite, you know, quite liked it, sort of successful. Absolutely loved it. But I would, I'd been to kind of boarding school. And so suddenly I was kind of thrown in. And I was, for all sorts of reasons, but, you know, suddenly art college, I was really out there on my own. And so it was all kind of quite odd really and there was girls around and I was rubbish with girls so actually I kind of frittered away my art college career um, thinking about girls actually and not really doing any art. Um. I don't think that's <laughs> particularly unusual um, um. but anyway so, so in, um, fast forward a little bit trained as a chef. No then I, I was sitting I actually had quite a good career as a portrait painter um, and um, was doing quite well and, but did something very odd to myself, which was to say that if I go on like this, I'm willful, I'm greedy, I have appetites, and I'm going to end up, a, I'm going to come a cropper, basically, and I need to do something um, that's going to teach me discipline. I mean, what a weird thing for a teenager to say so to himself. So can you so just enlarge on that? What did you mean, that, that you, di you didn't need all this sort of... Well, I was or, so or I lack of lack of sort of I had routine. Routine. Or? I had no routine, and my portraits were always late, and I was, you know, so I kind of decided that I spent more time thinking about things that I could do to goats. So sorry, that sounds really weird. Um, but I spent more time because I used to cook a lot at art college on my little baby belling um, in this tiny little room in Archway, which was covered in MDF dust, and I cooked and cooked and cooked at art college. And so when I left, I thought, what do you love? Um, I love cooking. My mum had an incredible library of um, cookbooks. And, um, and I thought, I, I, I want to go into um, food. So I, in a day, sitting outside a cafe, smoking a cigarette and a pair of brogues with a scarf on, trying to be very arty, I just thought, screw this. Um, so I walked to Alistair Little. Um, do you, any of you remember the great, probably one of the greatest cooks in this country, but one of the most under, you know, celebrated? And I said to him, will you give me a job? And he said, no. Um, 
go and work somewhere else and come back in six months. So I went and worked at a place called the Halcyon in the 90s and um, then went back to Alistair and started work. But I kind of went into kitchens when I went to the Halcyon. I said, oh, can I have a job? They said, sure, um, shut up and do what you're told. And I literally started, stopped up one day, started um, cooking about two days later. And so you then went back to Alistair Little, became a, a chef, and then, and then you sort of embarked on simultaneously on a career of... of TV and books? T TV was, I don't know how it happened because I spent actually quite a long time working in restaurants and then I had a catering company um, doing um, kind of nibbles for, the, for people who don't eat really and, um, <laughs> um, and, um, for, and it was, I, I'm a fidget, I'm one of life's fidgets, I don't like doing one thing, I'm a nervous person, I'm, uh, I need to move all the time, I like standing up and I didn't like in the end being in a kitchen making hundreds of little canapes and stuff so I got rid of that company and but while that was all going on this wonderful woman Pat Llewellyn who'd found Jamie Oliver and Gordon Ramsay and all these people said come and do a screen test with us and I'd never met Pat I don't know why this happened she didn't know why it happened she I mean what I mean is that we lost the point of contact about why we ever met um, but there we were together so I did a few screen tests and she said you're really odd and um, I just don't know what to do with you, but don't go away. Um, and then after three years, um, she was sitting in my house eating jugged hair. And she said, well, what should we do? And I said, well, the Vanity Project's been great. You've, you've filmed me, it's made me feel great, but it's not going anywhere. So my, and I think it was actually my dad talking to me, because he talks to me quite a lot, I think, from up there. And just this thing came to me, and I said, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll come and work for you, and I'll write television proposals for other people, as long as you help me write one for me. So I went to work in television and, um, and then we got commissioned after about a month of working there. Amazing. Yeah. So it was a kind of fluky... And, and had you done the books at that point, the, your, your cookbooks? No, no. no. The, the, the telly is the driver of all books and things. So right, okay. I was just a jobbing, you know, I was a guy who had a catering company and, you know, that was it. So books were with telly. And, and yeah. I think... I'm right in saying that you said that it didn't, you didn't really, it wasn't really your thing, TV. Is that it didn't really ever quite work in, for you in the way you wanted it to? Um, because now, if I was told to have, I think now if I, all the things that I ever wanted to go into programmes ended up on the edit floor. Um, all the things that I care about never made it into the programmes. And there was a, a terrible day where somebody said, um, we want you to run after those guinea fowl because it'll be really funny. And I said, but at the beginning of the program, I'm saying I'm born on a farm, and you know, no one would run around after their stuff. And yeah. what are you going to fucking do? Set it to the music of Benny Hill? I really wish I hadn't said that. <laughs> uh, uh, anyway, so they, you know, I'd been told, you know, don't get a reputation for being difficult to work with, which sunk into my brain is just do what you're told. And I was green, so I ended up kind of doing a lot of things which. Um, I, d I didn't enjoy because they weren't interesting to me. So we made programs and I enjoyed it and it brought me a lot of work. But when I look back at those programs now, I remember a lot of discomfort about if I, if I was making this myself, it would probably be unwatchable, but if I was making this myself, I'd actually go and want to look at that or go and want to look at that. But I'm being told all the time what to go and look at. So in a kind of way, you know, why are we doing this? Um, but, but then it opens up all sorts of doors and things that I would, you know, other things. And so, um, I mean, moving as it were onto the, in, onto the second part of this conversation and what you've been doing in the last year or two, you've been doing some extraordinarily interesting work in, in Norway, which I'll ask you about. But I suppose in many ways that's what you mean, is that you wouldn't have ever been asked to do this work. I wouldn't or, be going to Norway if no. it wasn't for So you're, the, work, you know, you're working telly. with Mark Hicks yeah. and you're working with a lot of other really fascinating people. And I, I imagine that... 
that, and I think this is often the case with, with all of our careers, if we're lucky enough to do things that are interesting, is that you kind of look back and you think, God, I, I wish I'd done this earlier. But then you realise actually you couldn't have done it earlier because you were doing the things that led to this point. And that's certainly the way my career's gone. But now your main, I mean, a lot of your work in the last year beyond the book, which we're going to come to, has been involved in this extraordinary project in Norway. Does anyone here know about this at all? It, it, it's quite weird. I swear, when the telly years happened, I was just fucking around. And I was having a big party. And I wasn't taking it seriously. And I wasn't walking into rooms and networking. And I've never been good at playing the game. If I don't like something, I tell people I don't like it. And that's not what you do if you want to get ahead. And I was very, very bad at it. What's happened now, after years of beating myself up as a result and going, wow, you had this amazing opportunity and you know, made eight series and it could have gone a long way, what were you thinking? at that time. You were just being an arrogant ass, I guess, in a way. And then you kind of beat yourself up and strange things happened. And I got married and had two children and then got divorced and went to this kind of real sinkhole, um, which was resolved by kind of going off and fishing and, you know, kind of getting away from everyone, actually. And, and I thought, you've got to kind of grow up a bit. And, and what are you interested in? And I think I've lot, a lot of met, met a lot of people over the last 10 years and, and realized that actually I really wanted to spend my time with people who know what they're talking about. And although, you know, I, I, I like stories and there's a, you know, I like, I like truth and I want to be with people who genuinely know what they do. And I think we live in an age of a lot of non-truth. Um, and speed and quick appropriation. So I met wonderful people like Ed, who's probably in this room, who's a brilliant knife maker, all sorts of wonderful people. And there was a wonderful woman called Ingen Rasmussen, what a name, and she'd been working in Korea, um, in the oil industry, and had grown up in the Lofoten Islands, which is right up on the northeast of Norway, and um, said, come and see this place. And I said, well, I can't really, because I'm quite busy. And, uh, and she said, no, you've got to come. And, and nothing happened. And then she rang me back. And you have those certain conversations with people where you think, so hold on a minute, you're, you're really funny and you're really nice. And we talked for hours um, the second time we talked. And then I said, right, I'm coming. So I arrive in this tiny airport and I'm driven through some of the... I've always liked woods and forests. I've always loved the idea of trolls because I absolutely think they exist. I just haven't seen one. Um, I like axes and I love aquavit. Um, so, um, and I'd filmed across Norway, I'd always wanted to go there, and my dad had always said to me, actually, I just kind of want to say this because it's, it's ruled so much about my life so far, as dad said, as long as it's not greedy or wanton, and there's, there's genuine intent, send your little messages out into the astral clockwork, and they will be answered. And so in a funny kind of way, very specific things that I've asked for in my life, like I want to work a lot in Norway, you know, started with a tele-series and now a business in Norway. So I do believe in that. And I turned up at this place and it was utterly beautiful. Um, super nature. Um, nature is the thing I probably care about outside of my children most. Um, I think we can't be here without it, but it sure as hell can be here without us. And it's being destroyed at a rate of knots. And I've suddenly arrived in this place which is mountains and wood and you want to go and eat cod for lunch, you take a five-minute trip out there and catch a cod. I mean, there's so much of it. And, and it's a wonderful place. You stand there and your menus come to you just by being surrounded by berries and mushrooms and fish and stuff. And I said, right, what do you want to do? Um, so we decided that basically Norway is going to be a place where we have great chefs. Um, we have um, brilliant bartenders because food and drink go together. Um, and yeah, I, I, I really enjoy drinking. 
Um, so food Can I just drink. stop you here? Yeah. There was a big feature on this place in the FT about a month ago. Yes. And a okay. journalist flew up and they went on sort of three flights and they were quite anxious and they got to this place and they opened the door and they said basically it was just sort of dark and smoky and from then on for the next three days they were drunk. <laughs> there was a terrible I mean, that moment. Was, that was what the. I mean, we had that whole, was my reading of this article. We had a, the, just at the end of that trip. There's a lot of people from Condé Nast sitting around a table who all are used to their sheets being ironed and getting everything they want whenever they want it, so that the hotel does well in the article. So I'm saying to it's outside, it's and everything's <laughs> rattling. There's these enormous waves coming in, and there's seven foot of snow piled up in the corner of things. I said, you really have to understand about this place. It's a different kind of luxury. As I say that, the dining room door gets ripped off and thrown <laughs> into the sea. Um, but anyway, we, um, so anyway, sorry. So it's um, chefs, bartenders, but then I think up there, it's a, it's a great place for words. Um, so uh, sadly, he's just not coming now because he's not very well. But Matt Haig was going to come and talk um, next week. Where we're going up on Monday. So it really, is the idea that we have um, words and food and drink, and then we've got um, Paul and Hunt up there who are. Um, knife makers. Um, Jim Parkin um, is coming up, who I'm sure some of you know has done work for Ardman, is coming up to teach puppet making. And then there's incredible walks, uh, mind-blowing fishing, because that's probably the, my greatest love pastime. And so, and we want people to kind of arrive there, forget the digital mayhem. You can't stop people being on their Instagram. I'm on there on my Instagram, but something happens in that place where all the muck goes skidding away across the Atlantic, and you really do, which I find very hard to and, do. And so that, yeah. that's and, and, and so that's your that's kind of the, your most recent business. Are you? I mean, how many times a year do you host these things? Um, I'm spending about five weeks there, but then next year, hopefully, it'll be about eleven weeks. We're we're running more and more wow. events up there. So, so does and that feel like you? I know, I'd absolutely <laughs> love to come. Does it feel like? Um, you know, this is your, your project, the thing you've been waiting for. It is. I'd, I'd actually quite like to go and live in Norway. Um, unfortunately, I have a distillery in Northumberland. Um, my children, sadly, but I see them every month, live in the Pyrenees, um, in the Spanish Pyrenees. And idiot, I go and start <laughs> <laughs> working in Norway. So as much as but, I'd like to live there, but because it's, a, of, it's, a, it's, a it's good somewhere thing. I'll go a lot. But, yeah. Um, okay, so, so let's... Um, Let's talk about this new book, because I, I, I've only read literally about five minutes of it this morning, because I think there's probably only one or two copies at the moment yeah, around. But, yeah. but, but it seems to me to be sort of your sort of polymath thing is coming out here, because what, what I think Valentine does particularly well is, is write about food. And, and this, this is not, I mean, I, I, I'm sure that the, um, the cookbook market is changing to more depth and more sort of intelligence. But... But this is this is not really a recipe book, is it? It's it's a it's a book of 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 you. I never I, I, I cook I cook on a hunch. I cook um, by sight. It's my currency. It's touchy feely sensory thing. It's not a sit down and make a list thing. I find it very very hard to take cooking into a format and write it down as a set of instructions. Um, but you've done that, presumably. Well, you know, in your other books, you've definitely done yeah, but, that. But what I, what I mean by that is whenever I wrote cookbooks, it's the story, it's the place I was, the chain-smoking Italian boar hunters, the Greek widow I'm trying to get an octopus recipe off, um, you know, whatever the case may be. It's not actually... I, I, of course I love the food, but it, it was never about the food. 
Um, so when they said, do you want to write another cookery book? It's like, no, there's enough cookery books in this world. I don't want to write another cookery book. You can have some recipes in it. But really, I want to write lots of stories. But I'll give you your recipes. Right, OK, yeah. OK. So um, um, the, the, the title is The Consolation of Food. Now, <laughs> I, I, I want to ask you about that title, but what was the book that you loved? The Consolation of... Consolations of the Forest. There Has anyone go. read Consolations of the Forest? It's one of the most beautiful pieces of travel writing ever. You recommend it to me. It is brilliant. Sylvain Tesson. Yeah. yeah, anyway. Well, so I'm talk talking about, about his book. No, no, talk talk about, no, no. <laughs> we're going to talk sorry, about Sorry, I'm not very good at self talk, talk about... No, you're, I'm yeah. going to make sure you are. Yeah. Talk about um, The Consolation of the Forest, because that's an interesting book. That of the ties, forest? Yes, yes, of the forest. Yeah. So Consolations of the Forest is written by a guy called Sylvain Tesson. And he basically, it starts with him going, why have we got 96 types of ketchup? We don't need 90. I've had enough of what's going on at the moment. It's too much choice. It's doing my head in. I'm going to go and live on um, Lake um, Baikal in the middle of winter in a hut that's 10 foot by 10 foot. And I'm going to record my madness. And I'm going to take 100 books, which I should have read and haven't, serious books, maths books, classics books. Um, and I'm... I'm just going to write down what happens to me. So he goes and lives in this very isolated place. His local neighbour is a Russian who lives 19 miles away through deep snow and says wonderful comments like, the less you talk, the longer you live, which I think is one of the best sentences <laughs> I've ever heard. Um, and he starts to write and say, you know, I'm writing about light coming through the curtain. Is this right? You know, I've written five pages on dust in the light. And, of course, it is right, and it's very beautiful, his writing. He writes about he falls in love with a finch that comes to visit his window every day. And he goes a bit bonkers. Um, but it, it's a really beautiful piece of writing about nature because you couldn't be more in nature than living in such a remote place and also, you know, being us in nature and then also about him. And, you know, it, yeah. it's a beautiful yeah. piece of writing. OK, so, um, I mean, it, it, it's not entirely unremoved from your Norway project. That's why I... Yeah, sort of talk yeah. About. Um, so talk to us... So how... First of all, how long ago was your last book? Um, my last book was um, five years ago. It was shit. Um, <laughs> sorry, but I really hated writing it. Again, I, I know myself, my, my publisher said, um, I, I, you know, what do you... I, I said to her, I suppose you want something called Speedy Greedy. And she said, fantastic, Val. <laughs> um, and I didn't want to write a quick recipe book. So we had a big row, and I ended up writing a book of recipes that could be made in around 45 minutes, possibly the worst idea in the world. Um, and also all the books before were called What to Eat Now, and this was called What to Eat Next, and everyone thought that they'd already bought it. I mean, the whole thing was a disaster. Um, and I just thought, I never want to write another cookbook again. Um, so, yeah. So, okay. And that was about six years so ago. So that, yeah. that is, in fact, you know, for, for a published author, quite a long gap. Yeah. So talk, talk, talk to us about this book. Let's, let's move on to this um, now, then. I like stories. Um, I wanted to have a brain dump. Half of the book couldn't be published because the legal department at Pavilion said, no, 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 no. <laughs> so there's a lot of stories I'd have liked to have told but would have implicated other people or just, um, you know, wild shenanigans. I'm not asking for dirt, but I mean, seriously, what, um, sort, of, what sort of thing? Just... Uh, anyway. Um, and which, what... which chefs, for example? Are you talking about? I'll tell you afterwards. <laughs> I'll tell you afterwards, having forgotten to take my mic off. Um, so... I, it's a kind of a brain dump. I found it extremely hard to write because I can't sit still. Um, and I'm constantly going up and down to the fridge. So actually reading it, I, there's a lot of stuff. It's a, my father's death affected me massively. 
Um, and he was somebody I've, I think I've spent a lot of my life trying to be like, and I'm bloody glad to finally realize that I won't. Um, so I've written about his death, and there's a few other deaths in there of people I was very, very fond of and what they meant to me. Um, it's my total contempt for the British divorce system, which I went through, but it's meant to be funny, so I've written about my lawyer, he's, <laughs> which did go in here, actually. Um, it, it's, called, um, it's called a buffet for my lawyer and a sandwich for me. Um, so he's in there. I've written a poem about my sister's pig. Um, I've written about some of the uh, catering disasters of my life. Um, and, and then um, my thoughts on nature, which is, I think, the thing closest to my heart. And, it's, and I think also the point is to, I wanted to let go. I wanted to say that everybody's trying to be perfect at the moment. And, um, and fuck that. Sorry, that's a very, not a very eloquent way of saying, but there's just this constant striving of how we all look. It's a book that also says slow down, don't speed up. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of things that are going to irritate people in here, but it's kind of everything. It's a brain dump and also enables me to create some space in my head to do the last 40 years before I, think I, I It sounds die. to me to be very... I hope you're going to last for longer than that, Val. I think, I think it's interesting, though, because I think it's quite heartening that a publisher is prepared to publish a book like that yeah. at the moment because, you know, everything is so categorised, I assume, in... in in you know books, isn't it? I mean, it's either this or it's that. It's something that's in between, unless it's a, you know, it's on the heels of something else. Well, I think that time is now, as everyone wants that little bit more, that quirkiness, uh, you know, theme. I hate themes, and it was very nice to be able to write something without without a theme to it as well. So and were the it jumps all over the place. They they were happy to kind of accept that slightly sort of. Um, maverick approach to it. Rather. Well, I think the only way they were prepared to accept it was by paying me absolutely nothing to write it. <laughs> well, isn't that, that's quite normal, though, isn't it? Uh, it's getting worse yeah. all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so um, I think that what we'll do is we will invite you to read a couple. I've of never done this before. Um, so one, the, the longest story I'm quite worried about, the reason that I've chosen two is one is that just at the moment there's a lot of... Um, I don't want to be cynical or critical but there's this big drive to kind of save everything. But, but it's kind of half-hearted. So I've written a story I hope you find funny called Shoal, which is really about, you know, slight pretense of saving everything. Um, so this is called Shoal, as in Shoal of Fish, and it's very short. <coughs> My voice is, sorry, I'm feeling terribly nervous. I've never done this before. <laughs> Many tides ago, I was at the Save the Ocean event in London. All the great and the good were there, environmentalists, chefs, philanthropists, marine biologists, journalists, authors, sashaying celebrities, and an otherwise glitzy renter crowd. All gathered, the volume was high in what was no less than an amazing marine theatre set. Replica polystyrene tuna fishes and sea creatures hung from the ceiling, while below the guest picked at trays of sustainable canapes, like shoals of exotic fish pecking at coral. Two women beside me were standing next to some fish tanks, Obsessed by each other's clothes and stroking each other's sequins in studied, pouting admiration, one turned to me and said, don't you think she looks beautiful? <laughs> Never being one who likes to be pushed towards a desired answer, I replied, in truth, I think the colourful fish behind you are far better dressed. They looked me up and down with flaring nostrils and slid away. 
Immediately behind me, I heard, Darling, do you know what this event is for? And turned to see a smartly dressed couple jiggling away to the music. Some sea thingy came, her reply, <laughs> followed by, I've had enough. Should we go and get some sushi? <laughs> like laughing into a snorkel and mask, it went wrong, and snorting champagne all down my front, I was met with another frosty stare. The pelagic wanderer, I'd taken my fill of this super shoal. I flicked my tail and headed to a friend's house for baked potatoes and beans. Um, I, I, I often get asked um, a lot um, what the weirdest thing I've ever eaten was. Um, one of the answers was a, a pig's vagina taco, um, which I actually said to the WI officer class. It didn't go down very well, and there was no sherry at the end of the talk. Um, but I guess this is actually a little bit weirder. It's quite a long story. I think it'll take me about six minutes. That's good. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay. And my American accent is very bad. Um, so this is called Yukon Gold. Um, and we were out in the Yukon filming um, a series of eating wild food um, all the way across Yukon um, and through the whole of Canada, in fact. So it's called Yukon Gold. There is a stop sign on a junction outside Dawson City. City may be once. This is two cabins bigger than a town. Underneath stop, someone has sprayed in black dribbling paint the dripping. Stop the dripping, it reads. Christ, I think. What is, it, is it, what is it exactly that's dripping? Is this what happens to men's minds in the ravaged outlands? First impression of Dorset in City is one of dilapidation, but with the questionable charm of a spaghetti western set. The place feels forgotten. The gigantic molehills of earth and rubble piled for miles outside the town are a testament to its long-gone boomtown gold days. There is a chewable air of hardship, desperation and disappointment to be spat at like a brown squirt of tobacco. I can only guess that any of those who escaped with their life or a bucket of golden nuggets, nug golden nuggets bought faraway farms in green rolling hills, and the few who prospered and stayed ended up no better off. Oh, and prospered, sorry, and the few who stayed ended up no better off. The dirt roads through the town are potholed with splashy, um, a potholed and splashy as rust-eaten SUVs plough through them. One truck that passes looks so rotted away it appears little more than a pile of autumn leaves with glass and wheels growling and farting blue smoke. Me and the crew are tired and head straight for a diner. We eat pancakes and bacon with coffee. I go outside for a cigarette and while looking at my phone hear the stamp and jingle of spurs. I turn to see a wild looking man. In a battered waxed long coat, smashed in hat and cowboy boots, his face is smudgy with dirt. He is tanned with a close beard and an earring. I wonder if he has a sawn-off shotgun under his coat. My name is Charlie Brown and I fuck dogs, are his first words. <laughs> I'm so flat tired, this doesn't have the desired effect, if there was indeed meant to be one. Good for you, I reply. Um, plenty of action, I continue, nodding towards some scrawny mongrel that trots past with its lipstick pizzle sticking out. Um, you're not from here, he says. No, I reply, which is why I was hoping if you could tell me that's the sun or the moon up there. He laughs hard and then coughs. I couldn't make this up if I tried. And asks if I might be around for a drink in Diamond Tooth Gerties later on. Um, perhaps, I reply, while thinking to myself, that although an establishment with such a name um, needs to be investigated, would I get gunned, at, gunned off the mezzanine or exit through the window in a burst of glass? Mind you, perfect chaperone, I think, continuing to weigh up the odds. Suit yourself, he says. Ask for Charlie Brown. And with a wave over his shoulder, he disappears. 
I head for the Raven's Nook Outfitters and buy a pair of red wing boots that in London would cost four times the price. The attendant sees I'm proud of them and says, steel toe caps, you could kick a bear in those. Is it likely, I inquire, <laughs> getting the impression immediately that it is. It's difficult to leave such a shop, the kind of shop that only Canada and the US can boast. Coats, you'd like this place actually, Charlie. <laughs> um, coats, caps, boots, plaid shirts, with likely a candy-coloured display of fishing lures and other outdoor essentials, thick socks and a musky spoon. My kind of place. Muskies, by the way, an enormous pike that live up in the northern lakes. It's bitterly cold and grey outside, and my fingers feel like they would smash like china. I buy some mittens at the counter. Back on the street, I see we buy gold, or gold for sale signs in many shops. I'm surprised to see a few considerable lumps on display, but most of the gold is tiny and pebble-sized, <coughs> dust in plastic bags or otherwise locked away. I'm not interested in buying any, as I can't help associating it with the cuts and gashes made by the brutal excavation of the surrounding territory, gold fever. Despite the oppressive foggy weather, I decide I'm enjoying Dawson in a gloomy sort of way, while also cheered to find James, our sandman, wandering about. He shows me the barber shop called Hair Cabaret, <laughs> and I dare him to get his hair cut um, and to ask for the local special. <laughs> uh, only if you give me all your per diems, he says. Why am I here, though? To become a member of the Dawson City Sour Toe Cocktail Club. This club grew out of frostbite, amputation by axe, to prevent gangrene, and some continued bravado that became tradition, a cult. So a cook walks into a bar, this is not a joke, called the Sourdough Saloon. Inside the dim environs, two guys are playing pool. Despite my inclination to start up conversation, I decide quickly that it would be wise to avoid them. They look like they could take anything the wrong way. Bearded mercury switches. They're shouting, falling over laughing. They have savage eyes and are worse for whiskey, beer, and I suspect whatever they've smoked off silver foil in exchange for gold. They look fucking dangerous. <laughs> The music plays, the outbursts continue, the pool ball clicks, and we are seated. A hunched and exhausted-looking Chinese man appears in an oversized pea coat and white skipper's hat, the type with the blue peak. He is the master of rights for the sour toe challenge. He looks tired of it all and rattles through the pledge, mumbling it quickly like it's an inconvenience. I recall the bit, you can drink it fast, you can drink it slow, but your lips must touch that horrible, hideous, gnarly toe. And so the toe is brought in on a small mountain of rock salt, presumably for hygiene and preservation purposes. At first, it looks like a well-chewed cigar stump. Closer inspection reveals the yellowing big toenail, the splintered bone two inches away from um, the other end of this grotesque medjool-sized um, um, date-sized digit. It looks hideous, hell's buffalo wing. By the way, do not swallow the toe, you will be fine. <laughs> Why would I do that? <laughs> um, I asked. Last week, some joker swallowed it, became a YouTube sensation. It's the last toe we have. Don't swallow it. <laughs> Where do you get them all? From all over. I don't know any, um, I don't want to know anymore. Has this been posted by a bent surgeon, hacked off by disturbed and sympathetic superfans, dug, dug up by French gravediggers? I'm so tired, so desperately unimpressed and travel weary. The minute the toe is plopped in the glass and the whiskey glugged on top, or maybe the other way around, but who cares, I swipe it from the table, tilt my head back and upend the glass. The whiskey shoots down. Do I detect savoury? There is, however, no bump <laughs> on the lips from the toe. Keeping the glass upturned above my head, I squint into it, only to see the toe lodged across the base. It must touch the lips, comes a, a, hoot, a hoot from the expectant crowd that suddenly gathered from nowhere. Yell right, don't get all hairy I grumble. 
Two good taps with my left hand and it falls to rest on my lips. Lowering my head in the glass and it falls back in. A Dutchman with a rat's tail and, crimp and crimped hair, God only knows, whoops and makes a fist. I receive a piece of yellow paper and I'm incredulous to learn. I'm somewhere around the 50,000th member um, of the uh, club. Are there really 49,000 or so folk living in Dawson? It turns out that the Sourdough Club is very popular, international in fact, and now has well over 100,000 members. I learn why. A young man bounces up and thumps me on the back with an over-the-top um, declaration of camaraderie. Isn't this great, he says. Are you asking me or telling me, I wonder. <laughs> um, where are you from anyway? We've driven up from Miami to do this. Can you have spent the money on a nice holiday in the Caribbean, I asked, baffled. You English, he laughs with a shake of his head. Personally, I'd rather eat a pig's vagina taco. See page 264. <laughs> I, um, uh, it's very good. And, and I, I, I don't know if anyone sort of really understands. I think you were nervous because it is very exposing reading that thing. It Isn't is. It? It's very. It's a, so. Thank you very much. And it was that, quite. Though. I mean, choosing them. To, I kind of. I think one of my favourite bits of writing is called um, "Growing Up to the Sound of Goat Bells" about not being with my children, and a day picking almonds and then having to leave them. Um, and it, I kind of. Um, I got wobbly when I was reading it in bed. And no, I understand. There are things more personal in there. So, um, so thank you very much for doing that, um, because I, I, I can see it's hard, particularly when you're putting out it out there for the. You know, for one of the first times in front of an I've audience. I've never done that before. Um, anyway, so um, well, I think I think that's a good time for us to um, to kind of say thank you very much to Valentine. Um, if you remember, buy the book. October um, the 9th. Yeah, but you can but you can pre-order from your publisher, can't you? I was just going to invite you all to my book launch, but then suddenly thought, shut up, out. <laughs> um, if anyone wants an invitation, I've got one in my email. Um, but um, I, I, you know, thank you so much for, for, for giving us your time, but also thank you for, for listening you know, allowing yourself to um, be exposed in that way, because I know how hard it is. It's brilliant. It's going to be a great success. Um, and and um, your festival's brilliant as well. well thanks, Val. Um, uh, and... Um, Big warm thanks to Valentine Warner. Well, thank you very, very much to Valentine for a really fantastically engaging podcast. Isn't it interesting that even someone as self-assured as Valentine can be nervous when reading from their own book? I do know that sense of feeling exposed. Oddly enough, if I do a talk, I often feel quite exposed if I read it to someone an individual or a couple of people before the talk and less so when I um, actually do it in front of an audience but it is quite exposing if that's the right verb to do it in front of a crowd for the first time so thanks to Val for making that possible and thank you to you for listening and thanks to my friend Jim Friend and until next time greetings from an extremely wet Glendye in King Cardinshire. See you soon. Bye.